Welcome everyone. I'm so excited that we could do this, that we could get all of these incredible brains together and have a proper discussion, part one of a proper discussion, because honestly, we could actually speak all week about this, but about race in Canada. And it's five parts for a reason. We want to be able to dive in a little bit deeper. We wanted to be able to bring it to a platform where we can talk and discuss. It's not a debate. It is a lesson. Uh, these are all the things we should have learned if you were raised in Canada and most of us have not learned. And it can set the context for how we got into the mess that we're in today. So without any further ado, I want to welcome my incredible panelists. We have Dr. Afua Cooper uh, with us today. We have Joseph Smith, who was like, so close to being Dr. Joseph Smith. If it wasn't for that COVID, he would be Dr. Joseph Smith. We have Cicely Bell Blaine with us from Vancouver. Okay, so let's start with slavery. And I know that there uh, were Blacks in Canada uh, before slavery, but I want to start with slavery because a lot of people think that this is just the place where the Underground Railroad stopped. They don't think that slavery was an active part of Canadian history. And maybe Dr. Akua Cooper, you can talk to us about when slavery started, when it ended, where were the slave enclaves, um, and how many were there in Canada? So we know that there were uh, people, Black people in Canada before 1628. 1628 is a year um, when we say slavery started in what is now Canada, because that was when a young boy from Madagascar or Guinea, who was subsequently renamed Olivier Lejeune, was brought to Quebec City and sold to one of Samuel de Champlain's friends, Samuel de Champlain, um, you know, one of the colonizers of, of Canada. But before that, even 1628, if we talk about the free Black people who were there, um, we think of Matthew de Costa, who was working for the French and then perhaps later on the Dutch. He was still in that context of colonization and exploration. He was working for these colonial and uh, imperial powers. So in the 17th century beginning, that is when we have slavery as a, as a system of bondage becoming um, worldwide, becoming global. So we say 1628 with Olivier Lejeune continued over the course of several centuries in both the French and later on the English or British colonial regime and was ended, uh, it ended in 1833, 1834 by an act of the British Parliament. We know it as the Emancipation Act. So we are talking about this institution, the enslavement of Africans, happening in what we call Canada for over two centuries. And what we call Canada then, we're looking at Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, Quebec, and Ontario, and even way down into Michigan and Ohio and Minnesota, which, believe it or not, was considered part of New France, i.e. Canada. Those places, they were called Le Pays d'en haut, the upper country. And so uh, Black people were used as slaves were used anywhere. Their labor, their wealth, their skills, their talents were taken from them in service of uh, white people. And it was for free and throughout generations. So imagine it was just like one generation. It was you, your children, and, and their great-grandchildren down the line. So what we have was a massive theft of Black people's bodies, lives, talents, and labor. And it, ha it happened all across what we call Canada. People who owned slaves were 
it wasn't just elite. Oftentimes there's that myth that only the elite owned slave, uh, rich people owned slave right down to the ordinary farmer, fisherman, innkeeper, whatever. It was uh, uh, people from all across the social and economic spectrum were um, enslavers of Black people's bodies. For those who don't know, where did the slaves come from? They came from all, all over. Some were born in Africa, were born here on the Canadian um, uh, landscape because, of course, women, women had children. And so the slave women gave birth here. Many came from the 13 colonies to the south. These are the 13 American colonies. Some came up from the West Indies. And then after the United States took its independence from Britain in 1783 because of the American Revolutionary War, thousands of enslaved people, these were the slaves of the loyalists, those who supported the British, also came up to Canada. So their origins were diverse. Do we know what they were producing in Canada? Slavery here was, I was going to say, it was primarily domestic. And a huge part of it was domestic. That is, enslaved people worked within households, as what people do within households as domestics, worked on farms. Um, but in places like Nova Scotia, in Louisburg, which is now Cape Breton, and, and along the coastal areas, enslaved people work in the fishing industry. Remember, during the French period and also in the English period, one of the things that people did was to produce salted fish, whether it's called herring or mackerel. So you had enslaved people also working in those industries, but primarily agricultural. And um, we had enslaved people working in the fur trade, especially men who were canoeists who would row those canoes up the river and down the lakes to go into the upper countries and so on. Enslaved woman, if we think of Peggy Pompadour from, from Toronto, when she was put up for sale by her owner, Peter Russell, who was administrator of the province, he, he listed some of her skills. He says she's a, a domestic, she knows that she's a washerwoman, she knows how to make candle, she knows how to make soap. He said she's a tolerable cook. So that gives you an idea of what enslaved people, in this case, women did. When you look at some of the ads that owners put in the newspaper for sale or ads that owners put in when enslaved people ran away from them, they said, oh, she, she knows how to bake or whatever, or he's a good apple orchard person. They, they list their skills. Women in particular were very vulnerable. Um, to sexual assaults from their owners. Because again, when you look sometimes at the, the birth of children and there's, it says something like father unknown, but it's listed that the child is a mulatto. So the father is white. How can the father be unknown? We know oftentimes the father is the owner of the woman. Do we know how many slaves were in Canada? Several thousand. You know, at the time of conquest in 1760, conquest meaning when Britain conquered France, and I mean, it, it's colonial discourse, right? Because I'm saying when Britain conquered France, of course, this was an ab Aboriginal landscape. But in terms of the colonial powers, you had the big Seven Years War, 1760, um, the British defeated the French. We're told that there were about 4,000 enslaved people at the time when New France ended. This increased with British power because Britain at 1760 was the largest slaveholding power empire in the world. And so Britain was able to move the many enslaved Africans from the 13 colonies to the south and also from the Caribbean into Africa. So we know when the white loyalists came here, they brought something like 2,000 more 
enslaved Africans with them. But we also have to look at it contextually. At the fall of Canada in 1760, there were something like 55,000 European settlers. So if you have 55,000 white people in the St. Lawrence colony, and you had 5,000 or 4,000 slaves, that's a lot of enslaved people per capita. So let's go into the post-slave era now, and let's talk about what life would have been like for Blacks. We hear about Juneteenth, and we hear about the fact that slaves in Texas did not know for two years that they were actually free. What was the story like in Canada? What was that transition like from slave to free men? Because Canada was a British colony by, by now in 1834, I would say that the, the edict was pronounced all over British North America. And in fact, I'm sure there were places in which the enslaved people didn't know they were free, but certainly it, after a time, they knew. So this is August 1st, and that's why, Tracy, we have Emancipation Day celebration in Canada. We've been having that since 1834, August 1st. It's a big thing, I know, in Toronto and, and GTA. So we have Emancipation Day. But what happened with Emancipation Day is that enslaved people legally got their freedom was something that was promulgated from the British Parliament. But legal freedom is important because it says, you know, you now own your body, you now own your children, you now own your skills. Hopefully, you're free to move about. But it did not translate in that way in reality. What you had was white power still remained entrenched. And a new social order uh, was reinscribed that was predicated on white supremacy and black inferiority. So what happened after the uh, slavery ended legally is that Black people were forced onto segregated settlements, segregated schooling. In fact, in some areas, they weren't even allowed to go to school. In your own province of Ontario, here in Nova Scotia, as far west as places like Alberta, segregated churches, public facilities, restaurants, bars, steamship, and so on, ferries. And the Black community really had to draw on its own resources to um, live as best as they could as full-fledged human beings. Because the same logic that was operating in slavery, that Black people were somehow subhuman, were chattel, were were commodities, that same logic remained in the post-slavery period. And we have to think of power, think of this power dynamic. Black people didn't gain economic social, political power in the post-slavery period. They still remained in a subservient position. And then you had this regular outburst of anti-Black sentiments in terms of riots, whether it was in St. Catherine's Ontario, whether it was in here in Nova Scotia. Is you know, like every 10 years, there was a, an expression of anti-Black hate through these riots. And then the desire of the national governments, the people will say, well, in 1867, we had confederation, true. The older, some of the older provinces confederated and became what we now call Canada, and then later other territories and provinces joined in. But when confederation happened in 1867, one of the things that the framers or, or the architects of this new construct put forth was a ban on Black migration to Canada. So imagine what this meant for the Black people who were already living in Canada. The, the framers of this new construct or the architects are saying, we just want this place to be for the sons of white men. And so we had this official white-only immigration policy 
to Canada, for Canada. And in 1911, it's this anti-Black um, sentiment reached its apogee with the order in council in our parliament that says Africans, wherever they're from, are not welcome in Canada. They should be banned from Canada. They should be banned from migrating to Canada. First time we have an immigration policy that was specifically predicated on race. And this policy remained in force until 1962. So almost for 100 years, Canada remained a white man's country. And the politicians would pay for people to come from Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Northern Europe, actually pay their ship's fare and give them money to go and settle in Alberta and wherever else. So in 1962, uh, many of us who are the children of immigrants from the West Indies had parents that came to Canada, and it must have been right after that policy uh, from 1962 when they allowed Black people to start coming into the country. What greeted Blacks that would have come into Canada post-1962? What was the environment? Was there any segregation still? Oh, yeah. There's still segregation. There was segregation. Then there's segregation. Now you still just need to come to Halifax and go to the Prestons. These are segregated communities which in some sense is a positive thing. But getting back to 1962, yeah, before that, so this 100 years from 1867 to 1962-67, when, you know, Black people were banned to come in as immigrants, a few Blacks were let in as domestics. You know about the domestic scheme, mm-hmm. farm workers, and as students. Mm-hmm. So these people, a trickle of them could come in, but not as immigrants. In fact, you, we all know that if a, a, a woman or a, a young girl who wants to come, wanted to come in as a domestic, she had to say she was not married. She had to say she had no children. And so even she had kids. And so after her tenure was up and she said, oh, I'd like to sponsor my husband or my kid. They're like, hell no. We were to come in to work as laborers, to work kind of as a upscale slave, a kind of sophisticated slave. It was to do labor work. So we could not come in as, as immigrants. And so if, when you think of people like um, Harry Gary and Donald Moore, these are original you know, activists who were here in the 30s, 40s, and 50s and could not even bring their own parents to Canada. In the 1950s, 54, I believe, you had this delegation that went to Ottawa and said to the federal government, this is ridiculous. You know, we are taxpayers, we are decent citizens, we can't bring our families here, you have to open up. And then here was Canada, the United Nations, presenting itself as its champion of freedom and democracy when it was pursuing a racist immigration policy. So in 1962, Prime Minister Diefenbaker, he said, this is untenable. We are at the United Nations um, you know, saying words against apartheid in South Africa, when in fact we have apartheid in Canada. And that was when uh, uh, there was some kind of liberalization of the system. But at the same time, when our parents were allowed to come in the 60s and so forth, they had to be so qualified because it was a point system. So they had to speak French or English, had a grade 12 education. You know, all these women who came here, Jean Augustine, Eva Smith, she was a dental hygienist in Jamaica. Jean Augustine was a teacher in Grenada. So many, they were so skilled. People were accountants. But the only way they could come into Canada was as domestics. But they gained those high points to enter. 
So what we had from the Caribbean in particular was this brain drain. Whereas if you had a grade three education and you're coming from Italy and didn't speak any English, you were welcome. Some people make the argument that the, the, the Blacks that came in as actual immigrants um, were dealing with maybe less oppression than the original Canadian Blacks that were here before the immigration policy opened up. I'm wondering what the scene was like for skilled Blacks that came in. Were they able to make inroads into workplaces where they treated equally in the education system? What are some of the institutions that were helping to hold Blacks back at that time? The education institution was a big thing. And of course, you have to look at it individually and, and also um, systemically, right? Sometimes people knew that you were going to go back to Jamaica. They would say, okay, let her get her degree. She's going to be out of here. But sometimes people thought you, you were going to stay or you had this idea to stay. They might not be so welcoming. But when you look at experiences of people in Toronto, say Montreal, Vancouver, and, and the big cities to which people um, gravitated. It wasn't an easy thing. One of my uh, colleagues, her mother was a, a doctor, a medical doctor, and she trained at the University of Edinburgh, where everybody who wanted to become a doctor in those days seemed to have gone, you know, high prestigious medical faculty. She stayed home in Montreal for 18 months without working. So when she went to the hospital to look after her charges, they said they did not want a black woman to, to touch them. And, you know, they use the N-word. So she went to Jamaica and, and had this brilliant career in Jamaica, right? She started the blood bank. She couldn't work in Canada. We're talking this was in the 50s. You may have read of that Queen's University in, in 1918 after World War I ended, turfed out its entire black medical student group just turfed them out because they said the people in Kingston General Hospital don't want black people touching. The veterans were coming back. And that wasn't so true. We have since discovered. Now imagine, I know one of these gentlemen, I don't know him, but I know of him because I have his picture hanging in my office at work because about three years ago, Queens offered him or gave him a posthumous doctorate. And so he, 18 men, 18 young men were turfed out. Very few of them were able to finish that medical degree. F.L. Birch, can't remember his last name right now. But anyway, he ended up becoming a sleeping car porter. Mm. Imagine coming from Trinidad. Your parents paying for you to become this doctor. The school kicked you out because mm. they didn't, and did not want Black people to train as doctors. And Queens didn't rescind that policy until the mid-1960s. And this is, if you Google Queen's University and Black medical student, it comes up because Queen has since about two years ago apologized for it. So it was tough and it doesn't matter which city you were. Now, in terms of the Black Canadians, um, like in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, who have been here since mid 18th century, yes, the, 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 the racism was certainly terrible, terrible. But Caribbean people could say, you know what, I'm going back to wherever, I'm going back to Jamaica, I'm going back to Trinidad, or I'm even going back to the United States because so many of us had training in the United States when we couldn't go to Canadian institutions to get higher training. And so we have here, in, especially in the Maritimes and Southwestern Ontario, these centuries of oppression that people are still dealing with the legacies of that today. In addition to that, my mother's experience coming from Jamaica 
to Toronto is a prime example of everything you're talking about, Doctor. She was a trained teacher for 11 years in Jamaica. And then she came here and she had me and she couldn't start her teaching career here. She had to go back to York University, get a four-year degree and, and then do teacher's college. And when she finished all of that, there was a freeze on hiring teachers. And all of that together only economically disadvantaged us, right? And we're coming from a single parent household. So everything you're saying, my experience and my lived experience is corroborated. Let's stay with education and let's look at what you're hearing, Joseph. You're part of a report that has done a really uh, deep dive into what's happening with students, mostly in the GTA. What are you hearing from Black students? What are their experiences like now? Black students that are registered in my nonprofit generation chosen or who have had the privilege to teach in both secondary and post-secondary spaces have been reaching out to me via text message, social media, and email, expressing these feelings of despondency, feeling beleaguered by feelings of fear and doubt, and also feeling ill-equipped to navigate what seems now to be like a nightmarish version of the reality that is only now being broadcasted around the world. And unfortunately, those anecdotal experiences corroborate or are corroborated by a lot of the research that came out of the Black Experience Project, which I was a project coordinator for. And that research project looked at the lived experiences or the quality of life of 1,500 individuals who identify themselves as Black within the GTA. And a couple of those data points are really telling and pertinent to this discussion. Um, one of them is being that between the ages of 16 and 24, BEP respondents expressed that they thought education was the greatest vehicle um, whereby they could achieve success in the future. And in addition to that, they also felt that racism and stereotypes would be the things that pose the greatest obstacles for them to achieving their success in the future. When we asked them questions about what were their feelings uh, of feeling appreciated or respected or cared for in schools in relationship to how many Black professionals were in the building, those that had Black professionals in the building said they had overwhelmingly great experiences in school. And those that didn't have any Black professionals in the building expressed that they felt horrible when they went to school. And then lastly, 79% of BEP respondents expressed that they experienced medium to low life satisfaction as a result of systemic anti-Black racism. And so when you take all that together, we have a picture that's quite diverse. You have young people believing that education is the vehicle and the step forward. But at the same time, they're trying to prepare themselves to deal with all of the anti-Black sentiments that they know that they're inevitably going to have to face. And at Generation Chosen, we're trying to give them this sense of emotional intelligence so they can have the skills to maybe navigate those spaces um, with marginally less friction. But it's incredible. Like they're aware that they're going into a space that's horrible. I can resonate because when I was 15, I didn't want to go to school at all. And I couldn't name why. There was this overall atmosphere and feeling that I'm not welcome here and that I'm not wanted, I'm not appreciated. And so not much has changed. Well, breaking news right before we went on, uh, Peel's education director was fired after criticism over the board's handling of racism, (sighs) dysfunction. Uh, that has been going on for years and years and years. And part of the issue here, and it's great that you've done your report, is that we do not collect race-based data in this country, which is why there is this feeling that nothing wrong is happening. We don't have the research to back any of this. You hear from students, but it's anecdotal. And um, it's difficult to, to launch an argument or fix curriculum or get in there unless there are actual stats. But yeah, the education system right now, I'm wondering if you have heard about Black students being steered in the direction of like away from academia, 
or Black students being more susceptible to the zero tolerance policy, being suspended at a higher rate? Are all of those things coming out in your report as well? Absolutely. I mean, the TDSB specifically has taken steps to de-stream junior classes so that individuals, irrespective of ability, can receive the same type of instruction. However, de-streaming, or sorry, streaming begins right at the beginning of the educational process because it really emanates from the minds and the prejudices and beliefs of the administrators and the educators within a particular school building. And so it, it starts with someone believing that a Black child is a deviant innately incompetent or lazy. And these are all vestiges of the slave economy that built this country and also the social segregation that emanated after that. And so like anti-Black racism is so insidious because it mutates and metamorphoses and fits new policy frameworks and and, and seemingly ostensibly new um, situations. But what we see is that anti-Black racism shows up in streaming when a child, for example, in elementary school that's Black isn't tested for giftedness as much as their white counterparts. Or when a child is disproportionately suspended and expelled from school for minor infractions as a result of a a teacher not being able to manage a classroom maybe. And then that child is now missing out on vital experiences inside the classroom and vital rich and uh, learning experience inside the classroom. And then we also see it show up when uh, children that are black are ushered into speced behavioral classes at a disproportionate rate to white students. And that's, again, because of classroom management sometimes, and also because a lot of the curricular activities that are being offered Black children aren't culturally responsive and relevant to meet their needs. And then you have a profile that gets built of a Black student that precedes them and goes to their high school administrators and teachers and then renders them in the minds of those individuals as being incapable to engage in academic classes. I know for me personally, Um, When I was in grade nine, I struggled with math a bit. And I had a a teacher who pretty much said to me, well, what good is you trying? You're better off just being a jock. And in that one sense, she's reducing my Black masculinity to stereotypes of what Black masculinity is. And so I'm sure everybody on this panel has situations where a teacher has come to them and said, are you really sure you want to take that advanced physics class or that academic math class or that lit class that's academic as well? And, and, And those kinds of experiences make you believe yourself that you can't do it. Cicely, you said something interesting. You say it's hard for people to see systemic racism. So how can you explain it in a way that people can wrap their head around? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think just, you know, tying together what my what my co-panelists have said here, I think people find it really hard to make the connection between some of these larger historical events of oppression and how they, the legacy and the hangover of those continues to inform the society that we live in. So, you know, thinking about slavery and especially in Canada, people people write it off as, oh, this happened so long ago, it no longer impacts or informs our society. But especially here in Vancouver, for example, one, you know, one topic that we often bring up is Hogan Valley, which was formerly a large black community here in the city that was, you know, basically erased, destroyed. Um, the black community uh, no longer exists in, the, in that way that it did. And when we think about the impact of that, we think about access to, you know, land ownership or like business ownership and things like that and how those things are crucial for, for folks to have 
a stake in, in our society. As much as capitalism is problematic, it, it's the functioning of our society. And if folks do not have buy-in, they do not have the ability to participate in society in the same way that others do. And when we speak about equity, for example, you know, a lot of folks are like, why is equity in terms of like equity and equality the same word as equity in like shareholders, for example? It's because what equity is, it, it's our purchasing power, our ability to participate in society as as equals as individuals. And and that's really what's been stripped from Black communities historically. And so, yeah, to go back to your point, I think power over time becomes increasingly invisible. If we travel back in time, you know, as modern day citizens, then we saw slave auctions. We would you know, we would clearly be able to say this is an outright abuse of power. This is a white supremacist action. This is a project of racism. But now, because those things are deeply, deeply embedded in the structures that we participate in, it becomes almost impossible for us to witness them. And especially for white folks who don't experience the ongoing impact of them, it's very easy to become complicit in participating in those systems and just going along with it. Um, because white folks are benefiting from those systems, whether consciously or not. And so it becomes very challenging to tease out where oppression is taking place. But as you say, Joseph, there's so many ways that, that this is impacting students and workers. And you know, one thing that always is of interest to me is how microaggressions, for example, are, are taking place in workplaces and in classrooms. And people are not making the connection to how those things are actually upholding dramatically violent power structures. Like one thing that was really interesting to me is how um, you know students who have their name mispronounced by teachers that has a extremely that can have a negative effect on their self esteem their self confidence which impacts their grades which exactly as all the things Joseph said these people are then streamed into lower performing streams or non academic streams which contributes to the school to prison pipeline you know it's 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 all connected so it's seems super simple to, to say that, you know, mispronouncing a student's name has such a catastrophic effect on the rest of their life, but it really does. You know, these microaggressions actually exist to uphold the larger power structures that we're all involved in. Really good answer. Uh, Angelique has come up again and again in this house. So can someone speak to Angelique, the slave girl who was blamed for burning Montreal to the ground? Well, I guess I should speak to it because <laughs> I, I wrote a book called The Hanging of Angelique, which is her story or part of it, at least. In 1734, on June 21st, that is for the anniversary of her execution, because on June 21st, at 7 p.m., she was hanged and then her body burned and her ashes cast to the four winds. And yes, she burnt down half of Montreal, or allegedly, I would say she did it. And it wasn't the first time Angelique tried escaping from slavery in Montreal. In February of the same year, 1734, she escaped for about two weeks. It was winter and her tracks were seen in the ground and she was trapped and she was returned to her owner. And again, she was one of the many enslaved Black people in Montreal. Interestingly, Tracy asked me, where did the enslaved people, um, where did they come from? Angelique came from Portugal, but ended up in New York with a Dutch owner. And then from New York, she was bought by a, a French owner from Montreal, a fur trader. There was a big fur trading arrangement between New France, Montreal, and Albany, New York. So that's how she ended up in Canada in 1725. She hated slavery, as every slave hated slavery. And when her owner died, when the male owner died, her mistress, the wife of the male owner, Therese Lequan, sold her again to another owner, in Quebec City and was waiting for the river to thaw, which is the St. Lawrence River, and then ship her on a canoe 
up to the Quebec City where she would be the slave of this new person. And she said in her trial documents, I didn't want to be sold again. I didn't want to be sold again. I wanted to be free. She was arrested a day after the fire, and then she was hanged, and then her body burned. And, and that story wasn't hidden in the documents. That story is in the government documents, but it was a story that Canadian historians, whether French or English historians, would talk about. So it became something that was put under the carpet or covered up by the carpet. So many incredible stories of slave revolt, which could be a whole other topic of conversation because slaves fought back often and furiously. You'll notice, glaringly, we have not talked about police brutality, which is huge, but we're going to make sure that we can dive deep into that on our next episode, which is on activism. I want a response to this thought, and it's that we have all been taught to be anti-Black. Because I, I really want to be able to make the link between history and contemporary times and how we are living in a world that is operating against us. How have we all been taught to be anti-Black? Cicely, you can go first. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, when we think about bias and how bias functions, it's because we are literally in, in every moment in our lives being inundated with negative stereotypes about people of color, especially about Black folks. And I think especially the way our mainstream media works, especially as we do consume a lot of content from the United States. Obviously, Canadian media can be racist too. But I, I think we are inundated with images that portray, you know, exactly as Joseph was saying, the reason why a teacher may perceive a young Black boy to be disruptive or, you know, to be aggressive or whatever it may be. It's because we've filtered the, these specific messages around Black masculinity and of being inherently dangerous or inherently criminal. And same with Black femininity of being over-sexualized or, you know, the angry Black woman kind of stereotype. And this is not just talking about contemporary media. Again, these things come from slavery and potentially even before where Black folks and, and slaves were specifically categorized by gender, by the gender binary that is also part of white supremacy. And, and this kind of idea that, you know, Black men are this one way and, and Black women are this one way. And, and we've, as a society, have never really been able to undo that, which, you know, in my experience, I talk a lot about the experiences of Black queer and trans folks and Black non-binary folks and how that rigidity of the gender binary has also had a huge impact on the Black queer and trans community as well. So yeah, just thinking about how it's it's really hard for us to deconstruct or disconnect ourselves from those biases. And so as you say, anybody who has a book, a TV, is in relationships with folks will be consuming and receiving anti-Black rhetoric. And it takes long-term integral work to unlearn that and to decolonize your mindset. And it's a, that's a lifelong process. You know, you can't just go to one workshop or watch one show and you've, you've undone your racist narratives. It's long-term integral work to unpack how racism has been um, indoctrinated to us, unfortunately, through all of the systems that we participate in. Yeah, we have all been forced to digest anti-Blackness. And it comes in the form of what Cicely was expressing, caricatures of our identity, which then produce false narratives as to who we are, which we inevitably subscribe to because they're produced and provided to us at such a young age when we can't really critique them. And all of those false notions of who we are manifest themselves in imposter syndrome. I can't tell you the degree to which growing up as a child in Jane Finch has impacted me in terms of the class and the race intersections 
whereby I don't feel comfortable in certain places of power or in certain places that are deemed prestigious. I don't think I can occupy space. My wife makes fun of me all the time for it because sometimes I'm trying to shrink myself when I go into malls. I don't want to be seen as aggressive. I'm always trying to disarm other people so they don't perceive me in the wrong way. All of that cyclical work takes me away from doing what I'm meant to do, which is speak out on these issues and, and be a good teacher and educator to my students. And that imposter syndrome gets to the, the, the root of who you are. It's in your gene pool. It's very hard to outdo and surmount because you're forced to subscribe to a narrative of your worth that renders you incapable. I would want to say that anti-Blackness is the foundation, the foundational core of white supremacy within the so-called Western world. And it came out of the experience of slavery. Because how do you justify slavery? So to justify slavery, the enslavers and the slave traders, they said, well, Black people are inferior. In fact, they are worse than inferior. They're subhuman. They're not fully human beings. Remember, the United States Constitution said that Black people were three-fifths human. So Black people were cast out of humanity. And whichever emancipation happened, whether it was British or American or Brazilian, in the post-slavery period, that humanity was not restored to us. We knew we were human beings, of course. But the laws, the policies, and the new societies that were created did not acknowledge Black humanity, Black people as full human beings. When the cop that killed Mike Brown in Missouri, he said he looked like a, like a monster or a demon coming towards him. How did an 18-year-old or any age, for that matter, person look like a demon? But that's what he said. He felt that this monster was coming toward him, so he shot him down. So we, 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 we are often theorized and, and, and seen as these things. So until we have to dismantle white supremacy, dismantle capitalism, because this is this glue, this anti-blackness glue is what holds these things together. And in the minds of white people or in the psyche of white people, remember when slavery ended, we did not have a psychological intervention. The same people who hold power then continue to hold power in their thinking, in their monetary relationships, in social power, they continue to hold power. And continue to see black people as at the bottom of the if, if important people, leaders like Thomas Jefferson said that black people are basically beasts. That idea is still there in the psyche. And unfortunately, as has been said before, it's also in the minds of black people. Many black people are also anti-black because we we've learned it, as Ibrahim Kendi said, it, it's like rain falling down on you, and you don't know that rain is falling down on you until someone offers you an umbrella. And within our own communities, and I have to say, there's also this anti-black, black. Mm-hmm. So the darker skin you are, white people don't like you. But also some black people don't like you. So you bring home a dark-skinned girl or a dark-skinned boy, and you say, you know, this is my boo, and your parents or cousin or whomever said, hey, well, can you find a lighter-skinned girl? That still happens today. So we ourselves don't like black people, especially when they're too dark, because we have been taught that way. We also never received the psychological intervention. So it's a, a, a long, long journey. And this is why we do the work we do. Because when you see these beautiful little boys and girls coming up and, you know, they're so fantastic, they're so beautiful, and their own parents are telling them that they're ugly. You know, when the the modeling agency, I used to, my kids, my daughters at one point, people thought, you know, they they look modelesque. 
So I should take them to an agency. And I, I tried a couple of times. And the, the message I received was, you know, lighter skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but not your complexion. You know, only if the role calls for it. Only if the producer said, we need a girl of this particular complexion. But you had modeling agencies in Toronto. If they get pictures of a dark-skinned girl, they threw it in the garbage. Right. They just wanted that light or near white girl. So white supremacy is a disease and it's a disease. Why it's so crazy and that must be toppled is that white people, as I've seen, we must always think about power. Who owns the power? You know, these visible powers. But we also are powerful. If you look at the global movement that has arisen since the death of, of George Floyd, you see the power that people have. And, and that's just fantastic. And we can change things overnight if we, if we own that power. And the work has just, I mean, it's a continuation because we've had ancestors working forever. But I think that people are finally, hopefully, listening in our time. So it's a good opportunity to seize it. Dr. Afua Cooper, thank you so much for the education. Joseph Smith, thank you so much for the education. Thank you to Cicely as well for joining us. And for everyone that joined us for today's lesson, the education continues. Thank you to our fabulous guest today. 